If you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 6. That was a fitting psalm to sing. Transitions well into the message this morning as we talk about the reality of ministry and the rejection that we all will face. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about, um, went about among the villages teaching. This ends the reading of the Word of God. Clifton Herring is a name that many of you are probably not familiar with. He was the head basketball coach at Laney High School in Wilmington, North Carolina from 1977 to 1982. He is better remembered as the coach who cut Michael Jordan his sophomore year. It is a story that has become more legend than maybe factual, but nonetheless it is true that Michael Jordan was not he was cut from his varsity tryouts when he was a sophomore. It is a story of rejection. Jordan says of this account that he went home that day and he cried. It was a case of rejection and refusal. When we think about something as trivial as the rejection of the greatest basketball player that ever played in the game of basketball, or passing on the greatest of all time in the sixth round, we could wonder, how would that ever happen? But something simple as this just reveals to us the realities of this life. Rejection is inevitable. But it is one thing to miss on Jordan or Brady. It doesn't compare to what we are going to see in the text before us now. It is another thing to miss on Jesus. We will see that as we work through here. But this is a story of rejection. Notice here in verses 1 through 3 of Mark's Gospel here, we would notice the people's rejection of Jesus. Jesus has decided it's time for Him to move on in His ministry where He's been located up in Capernaum, some 20 miles north of Nazareth on the Sea of Galilee. And so He decides it's time to venture back home. He ventures home with His disciples to the hill country of Nazareth in Galilee. And at this point, his disciples are with him on official discipleship business. The training program has begun. 
if you've noticed up until this point, they've been taught a lot of lessons just from chapters 4 and 5. Well, they're going to get get and receive another valuable lesson in the ministry, and that is of facing and embracing rejection. So Jesus makes his way down to his hometown. This is interesting. When he arrives there, it must have been as he enters into Nazareth, the many who were there of that town would have recognized him. They would have remembered that Jesus was a part of that new family some 28 years ago, 30, 28 or so years ago that arrived into town. It was Mary and Joseph and their little two-year-old. They had made their way up from Egypt. And so they're the new family in town and they embrace them. And Jesus grows up in this town and Mary has more sons and daughters. So as he returns there, it is a familiar face that they see. Now, the last engagement that we had with the family of Jesus, I would call your attention to, would be back in chapter 3 of Mark. And it wasn't a good one. No, in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, they actually hear what Jesus is doing some 20 miles north. And they're saying, he's out of his mind. We need to go stop him. We need to seize him. The carpenter boy is going crazy. You would see it furthermore in chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. They came to seize him, to silence him, to stop him. They are driven by utter unbelief. We're talking about his family. This is when they came to him. Now, Jesus is coming to them. And sadly, it's the same result that we will see here. So, he enters his hometown with his disciples. And we notice here in verse 2. He enters town sometime before the Sabbath because it's longer than a Sabbath day journey from Capernaum to Nazareth. So he gets in before the Sabbath, and then on that coming Saturday, he enters into the synagogue, which is his custom. He enters into the synagogue, and he is given the opportunity to expound the reading of the Torah and the prophets. This is what we see here in verse 2. He began to teach in the synagogue. But one thing that is striking is that on this particular day in Nazareth, these people in the synagogue were about to hear something they have never heard before in their life. The Word of God was going to teach the Word of God. So he walks into the synagogue on this Sabbath day. He goes right into the middle of the synagogue where the rabbi would stand to read. And he's given the scroll of Isaiah. Mark doesn't give us the details. Luke does in chapter 4, the parallel passage. Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to this section. And he reads these words on this day in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at that moment, he reads the scroll of Isaiah and it says that all eyes were fixed upon him. And he says these profound words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing something nobody else has ever dared to say in the synagogue. At first, the people react to this. They're, as we see here in Mark 6, they're astonished. And then the question comes, wait a minute. What did he just say? Did he just say what we think he just said? Did you, did you hear that? 
that this is, this is being fulfilled. This is a messianic portion of Scripture here. Does this mean that Jesus is saying that he, the, the boy carpenter, that little two-year-old baby that came into town, is he saying that he is the Messiah? And here comes the make-or-break point with the people here in the synagogue. They could have taken what they heard and gone from astonishment to thanksgiving to submission and acceptance. And they could have rejoiced. The Messiah's from our town. I know it said Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, but he, he, he grew up here. They would have accepted the man. They would have accepted the message. They would have accepted his ministry. Instead, this is not the case. Instead of this four-step process of acceptance, what we see here is the people ask four questions that lead to a four-step process of rejection of Jesus. They go from questioning to doubting to dismissing and ultimately rejection. Now, this process is not unique to the people of Nazareth at all. Spend any time serving in ministry and you will see this happen. It's been going on for thousands of years. It has been going on since the beginning of time. In my nearly 10 years of serving here in Gwinnesset, we have watched many people go through this four-step process of questioning, doubting, dismissing, or rejecting. Whether it be the rejecting of the gospel message, whether it be the rejecting of the gospel messenger, whether it be not agreeing with a leadership decision, we see this happen. And whatever the case is, it always leaves scars. Rejection hurts. There's no getting around it. So notice here, as we would look at the reaction of the people, the rejection of the people, we first see in verse 2 the questioning. They ask the question, where did this man get these things? Well, what are they asking? They're saying, he's just a laborer. This is who he is. He's nothing more than a, a laborer. Where did he get his education? He didn't go to rabbinical school. He hasn't received any formal training. He's not qualified. So they start out by questioning the man. But then the next question they ask, what is the wisdom given to him? Where did he get this insight? How could he apply the scriptures in this way? Who gives him the authority to say that this is fulfilled in our hearing? They go from questioning the man to questioning the message. From questioning, they don't just stay there and ask honest questions because they're looking for honest answers. They're on the pathway to rejection here because they're so familiar with the man. So they go from questioning to doubting. Here's the next question, question number three. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Aren't those the hands that make plows? Those are the carpenter's hands. How is he doing these miraculous works? Because no doubt, Jesus' fame has spread throughout all of Galilee. See, they're, the question, they're questioning now his ministry. Now remember, back in chapter 3, it is concluded that the power by which Jesus does the things that he does is either by God or it is by Satan. They leave no middle ground, and it is either by God or by Satan that Jesus does the things that he does. And they certainly do not believe that he claims to be who he is. They do not believe this to be the power of God. So they're now they're doubting him. 
But that's still not enough. We go to the third part of rejection. From questioning to doubting to dismissing. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter? Isn't this who we, this, is, this isn't, who is this guy? And this is, isn't his family here? There's nothing special about this man. This is their attitude. He's ordinary. He's just like one of us. They're thinking, we remember when you were a kid, Jesus. One person might have said, I used to babysit him. We remember when we had to send out the Amber Alert because you were missing around the temple. Remember that? We forgot you, but you were at the temple, Jesus. And look at you now. You're not who we remember you to be. You are a carpenter. You fashion yokes and plows. Jesus, you're not a rabbi. Well, at least you're not my rabbi, Jesus. This is the attitude of the people. Now you understand why. The people of Nazareth had to reject Jesus. Because in order to accept Jesus, they had to reject the status quo. They had to realize that the boy carpenter was not one any longer. Something that they refused to do. There's a principle I think we can all take away from here. When you get stuck in the past, you will fail to realize the present. You will fail to realize and recognize the present. And so finally, from questioning to doubting to dismissing comes the people's rejection. The end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Time would not permit us to go over to, to Luke and see the exact words that Jesus uses, but I would encourage you to look over at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. We get more details about the remainder of Jesus' message. He opens up reading the scroll of Isaiah, but he has more words for the people than just that. Just to summarize, Jesus didn't go into the synagogue that day to tickle their ears. Jesus didn't go into the synagogue that day to appease the people from his hometown. Jesus didn't go in there to cater to their wishes or try to be liked or lobby for acceptance. No, he was about his mission. And what happened? The people didn't like what they heard. They didn't like how they heard it. And they didn't like who they heard it from. What we can notice here is that hard preaching produces soft hearts and exposes hard ones. Whereas soft preaching produces hard hearts and exposes nothing. And so from this point even here, the people of Nazareth are forever known in the pages of Holy Scripture as the people who rejected Jesus of his own hometown. We must ask the question, though, why? Why? I mean, we read all these things that Jesus has done. Why would they do that? Why would anybody cut Michael Jordan? People are fickle. People are sinners. But Jesus provides us here in verse 4 a little bit of wisdom into why this rejection took place. He provides us a proverbial reality. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Among the ancients and Greek philosophers, they would have a statement that went something like, 
Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus isn't saying this as an absolute statement, but this is a general rule or principle that more often than not proves true. Why? The danger of familiarity. A prophet, a pastor, a teacher, a minister of the gospel, a faithful Christian should expect the closer that they get to home, the greater the likelihood of rejection. Face it and be ready to embrace it. He says, your hometown. Why? Because everybody knows you. Everybody knows you from when you were that little tyke running around. Everybody knows you from your formative years. Maybe some of those adolescent years were very difficult years. And most of the time, people get stuck in this certain period of time, how they remember you. If there was ever a text so relevant to my own life, it's this one. I'm pastoring in my hometown. By God's grace, I'm in my home church. I was the little kid running through the tunnel. Some of you saw me in the nursery. Some of you were my middle school, Sunday school teachers. Thank you for being patient with me. (laughs) Not only that, there's a lot of my own household in this church as well. I've been told by many that this is impossible. Think about your life as a Christian. You run into some old friends Let's call it the B.C. years, the before Christ years. There's the danger of familiarity, right? Those people from high school that you might see from years back when you're different. They don't want to talk to you about the glory days. And you're thinking there was nothing glorious about those days. You've done a good job like the Apostle Paul saying, forgetting the things that are behind, I press on. To the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I don't want to talk about those days anymore. That was the Old Testament, John. We're in a new time. We're in the new covenant. You see the familiarity that can come. So from your own hometown, people remembering you for the kid that you were. But not just in your own hometown that we would see here from Jesus. It says, among your relatives, old Uncle Bob and Auntie Betty, they remember that cute little boy or little girl that was in diapers. You're trying to introduce them to, like, your spouse and your family, and they're just talking about when you were a baby. You're forever a kid in their eyes. Nobody grows up around them. Even worse, among your relatives, you hear the gospel. Your life has been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are burdened most for your relatives. So you want to go home. You want to go home and you think, there's going to be a revival in my hometown and I'm bringing it. So you go home and you try to share the message of Jesus Christ with non-believing family and friends, yet they feel the liberty to cross lines that nobody else would dream of. Secretly, they think you're crazy, that you've joined a cult, that you're, you're, you're reaching out for a crutch in your life. You just need some religion to make yourself feel better along the way. The reaction from even relatives, the danger of familiarity. I remember after the Lord laid a hold of my life and, 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 and transformed my life and talking about Jesus, I had this desire that I would go to all my friends, all of my old friends, and I wanted to tell them what the Lord had done for me. 
And I remember going over and talking to some friends, and all of a sudden, you're not doing the things that you were once doing anymore. Come on, man. What's wrong with you? You don't laugh at those jokes anymore. You don't want to partake in those activities anymore. No, I want to talk about Jesus. I remember going to one of my friend's house, and he was in his junior year at URI, and he was studying to be a psych major. And so he thought this would be a great opportunity to psychoanalyze this thing that's happening in my life. He's practicing his cognitive behavior therapy on me, and I'm like, fine, as long as you're letting me talk about Jesus. And so he's trying to psychoanalyze, what is it that happened? What would have caused this, this major shift in your life? So he's, he's combing through his textbooks, and I'm just sitting there like, Jesus Christ changed my life. We had three or four sessions he couldn't seem to find an answer, and I remember he called me. He sent me a text message early, and then he called me. at. This guy used to sleep until noon, so he called me at 6 in the morning, which was incredible. And he says, hey, I've been up all night, and I have to conclude this. I think what you're telling me is real. I have not found a logical explanation in all my psychology for what happened to your life. I must conclude God changes the life of people. He's been a brother that I've been in touch with for many years, praying, and as our families grow, we stay in contact. You don't always get that response from people most of the time. It's that you've joined a cult. You need a crutch. These are among your relatives and your friends, but even your own household, the danger of familiarity. Sometimes the people that will struggle to listen to you the most will be those of your own family those closest to you. In Jesus' case, it's his siblings here. Think about what it took for James to actually get it with Jesus. It took a crucifixion, a resurrection, plus a personal appearance of the resurrected Jesus to his brother James before James finally said, I think I get it now. You are the Messiah. And James gives his life and dies for his brother as a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Here's the point. Christian, you will face rejection when it comes to those of even your own household. Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, Jesus warns us of this. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. As faithful proclaimers of Jesus Christ, as servants of the Lord, as ministers of the gospel that we are all called to be, we will face rejection by those closest to us. In our homes, from our extended family, in our hometown, and sometimes, sadly, even in our church. When this happens to you, Christian, let me encourage you, take heart. Take heart, you stand in good company. You stand in great company. You lock arms and enter in to the fraternity of the blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We understand that rejection is lonely. Rejection hurts. But understand, even though it is lonely, you are never alone. If you desire to be faithful 
and committed to biblical Christianity, you are signing up for rejection. You are putting the big red target on your back. Be prepared. Do not be surprised. This is the proverbial reality. And we notice here the painful result that comes from it. What was the result here we would see in verses 5 and 6 of the people's rejection? Sadly, Jesus' ministry is cut short in Nazareth. We read here, look at your text, verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there. It doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't able to do something. Jesus has the ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. What we are seeing here, it's not that he wasn't able, it's that the people didn't want him. It's just like the people who cared more about their pigs in the previous chapter. They say, go away from us. There are four painful results of rejection that we see here in these verses. First, it's that the people missed out on blessing. They missed out on blessing. It says here that only he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. This indicates that some believed, some trusted in faith, some were blessed by Jesus, but the majority missed out on the blessing. A second painful reality is that it hurts the heart. There's no getting around this. We see here, even in Jesus, it says in verse 6, and he marveled. Mark shows us a picture of Jesus' humanity here. Jesus felt the sting of rejection even in his hometown. This, this marveling, this without words, completely dumbstruck by the people's reaction, by their unbelief. This rings true because Jesus truly was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Third, we see the people remained hard-hearted. This is a painful reality. It's because of their unbelief. They remained in the place that they were. They refused to see what was before their eyes. And the scary part was they were convinced that they were right and that he was wrong. Fourth, Jesus departs from them. The worst. Jesus departs from them. At the end of verse 6, and he went about among the villages teaching. They lost out on Jesus. Refusal and rejection is the remembrance of these people for the last 2,000 years. But we do notice something here encouraging by way of the, 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 the testimony of Jesus is that Jesus did not allow the pain of rejection here to distract him from his mission. Just because they rejected him in Nazareth did not mean that he was going to stop his ministry. Brothers and sisters, don't let rejection close to home distract you, cause you to doubt your ministry. Actually, it's an affirming of your ministry. The pain of rejection, the doubts, the questioning and dismissing are to strengthen us. The ones that I've experienced both in the world and in the church have only served to strengthen my own conviction and my calling, you will be opposed if you find yourself always accepted in every situation. That's the problem. You need to start asking, where do you stand if everybody gets along with you all the time? So here we see, even in these six verses, the reality of ministry. 
rejection is a reality we all face as Christians. Let me ask you, how do you respond? How should you respond? How are we to respond? We are never more like Christ than when we are rejected for Christ. So what are some lessons and application we can take even from this short passage? First, I want to address the unbeliever in this room. There are some listening right now that are sitting here that are rejecting Jesus. For one reason or another, they are rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. Why? Maybe you've had a bad experience in church before. Maybe you've met a Christian that left a bad taste in your mouth. Let me tell you, sadly, some of the nastiest people I've ever met are Christians. That's not Jesus. No, that's not Jesus. Maybe you are rejecting him because you just don't know him. It's out of ignorance. Let me tell you something. You can know him. You can know him today. Maybe you have intellectual or ethical or scientific hang-ups that are causing you to try to work through some, some, some issues of understanding of the Christian faith. That's great. Let's talk about it. I love those conversations. But that's not a reason to reject Jesus. You can work through issues with not rejecting Jesus. There's no reason to reject the free offer of the gospel. Understand, friends, unbeliever, there is a lot at stake here. There is a lot at stake, more than you are aware. Rejecting Jesus has eternal consequences. You might miss on a sports player. Rejecting Jesus has consequences for eternity. We read in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. There it is, rejection. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. That's the embrace. To embrace Christ, to receive Christ by faith, to, to go from rejecter to one that embraces Him, is to be a child of God is to be brought into the family. The gift that Jesus brings us is adoption into the family of God. So unbeliever, I want to urge you and I want to plead with you. If you are here right now and you are rejecting Jesus, oh, from the bottom of my heart, I would say, please don't. I would plead with you, go from rejecting to embracing Christ. Say, well, how do I do that? Well, that's a good question. We are to receive Christ by faith. The free offer of the gospel, it is, as, it is wide open to all who will come. We all once were rejectors of Jesus. We all lived a life as sheep that have gone astray, each to his own way. We all needed to be brought in. And there's one way, there's one narrow way. It is through the narrow gate that Jesus talks about. And it is through faith and repentance in him and him alone. You see, there is a, there is a great divide There is a great divide between God and man. Our sin has caused us this chasm that cannot be crossed. We cannot build a bridge to cross this chasm. In fact, we are dead. We need rescue. There is no bridge we can build to cross this. But here's some good news. 
there is a cross that bridges the great divide. And it is through the cross of Jesus Christ, him coming, the perfect God-man, born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfect and sinless life, goes to the cross to bear our sin and our shame. There he dies on the cross, the perfect man, to stand in the place of sinners, to offer himself as a substitute for their penalty, to take upon them their crimes, to to spill his blood as an atonement for our sins, our sacrifice, standing in our place. So that all who will receive him by faith, that will turn from their sins that nailed him to the cross and would look upon that, the suffering Savior in the eyes of faith that would grasp him, will find forgiveness in his name. We must repent and believe the gospel. We must go from rejecting to embracing. What does that mean? It means to stop trusting in yourself. And start trusting in him. Your morality will not save you. Your good works will not save you. Your going to church will not save you. Your Bible reading will not save you. Your prayer life will not save you. Jesus saves you. And it's through him and him alone. If you are not there, you have not received Christ by faith, do so today. And as he died on that cross... Three days later, he rises from the dead as proof. It is God's exclamation point on the life of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he lives now in heaven, never to die again, seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you. Romans 10, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's God's promise. God's never broken a promise. Titus, in Titus chapter 1, God cannot lie. He is not capable of doing this. So if God has promised it, you can take it to the bank, and you can bank eternity on this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn to your Savior. No, that does not mean clean yourself up before you get to Jesus. Get to Jesus and you get cleaned up. Jesus has never saved a perfect person in his life. For some reason, God brought you here this morning to hear this message, that as you come as a rejecter of his son, that you would leave as a receiver of Christ. To the individual Christian here, Be ready to face and embrace rejection from the world and from those that are close to home. A few practical applications that I would want to give from my heart to yours. Do not allow rejection to make you bitter. Do not allow rejection to make you bitter. Jesus marveled, but he did not hold a grudge. Second, do not respond in kind. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not respond in kind. Third, determine to pray for those who reject you. The tendency is to want to get bitter, to hold a grudge, to let those wounds fester. Prayer is a healing balm. Pray for those who reject you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Fourth, understand this. You cannot have it all.
You cannot have it all. You cannot find acceptance by the world and by God. You decide. Understand this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The words of Jesus Christ. Fifth, allow rejection to make you but not break you. You are no more like Christ than when you are rejected for his name's sake. And finally, what about all of us together, corporately? Some principles that we should see. We do not, as a church, want to be like the people of Nazareth. We do not want to find ourselves like the members of that synagogue that day. As Jesus continues to build his church, he is at the same time in doing so, he is raising up godly men and women that will give themselves to the work of the gospel. He continues to do so by raising up, calling, and equipping qualified men and women for gospel service in his church and on the mission field. Do not get stuck remembering what someone used to be and fail to recognize who they are. Second, I would say application. Pray that God would raise up ministers, pastors, missionaries, and lay leaders from among us. Have your eyes set on not just what's going to happen today or tomorrow. Where are the children going to worship in 35 years? Where's the gospel going? We are not called to build our kingdom. We are called to labor for the kingdom of God. We are, what greater thing than to see men and women to come up from among us who are sold out for the gospel, sold out for Jesus Christ, and say, yes, I will take that banner of Christ and I will go. I will go to a place where Jesus is not proclaimed. That is to say, I am willing to take the burden of the ministry. That I am willing to give it all for Christ. I am willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Let us pray that we would see that happen here. That God would stir the hearts of people. Not just young people, all of you. 55 is not too young to be a missionary. We don't, keep, we don't have to keep looking down and saying, well, maybe one day when those people come up. I'm talking to all of you. Maybe it is your time. Pray that God would raise up ministers, pastors, missionaries, and lay leaders from among us. A third thing we can do corporately so that as we would reject the rejectors of Nazareth, encourage, affirm, and support the desires of those in gospel ministry. This is a part that we all can play. Healthy churches produces, produce pastors and ministers. Healthy congregations recognize and support the work of the ministry for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. This is our call. This is our privilege. We get to serve the king. Finally, reject skepticism. Reject being a skeptic that contributes to problems and offers no solutions. Embrace a position of charity. When in doubt, assume the best. Never judge motive, or in other words, just be a Christian. So as we would bring even this message here to a close, recognize that rejection is inevitable. Prepare for it, Christian. Also, do not be surprised. The closer you get to home, the more real it becomes. But by God's grace, when we face rejection from our friends and our family, our relatives, our, in our hometown, that rejection is outside these walls. It is not inside these walls. We know that we have a safe place to return to, the covenant community, where we will be embraced as brother and sister. 
May we be a community that accepts and embraces one another as the beloved in Jesus, just as Jesus accepts and embraces us with all of our failings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the warnings of your word, the reality of your word that you show us that even the ministry is messy and at times very difficult. Lord, remind us of the great reward for which we labor, the treasures in heaven. Set our minds on things above, not on things below. Give us a passion for the advancement of your kingdom and the good of your people. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.